Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by Eagle Moss, Hero Collector, and the brand new official Star Trek Online Starship Collection. The first two ships in the collection, the USS Gagarin and the USS Chimera, are available now for only $29.95 each with free shipping at herocollector.com slash sto. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 361, The Ship. to another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, we take a look at every episode of Star Trek in order and by season, diving deep to find the morals, meanings, and messages contained within, and making sure we can bridge a certain level of trust within the show and with you. This week, the ship. Nope, not, not that. No, not that ship. Nope, not that ship either. It's the other tough little ship. Not named Defiant. I was a little jealous when I saw this tough little ship because I love the Defiant and, Uh you know, but I'm sure that we'll hear more messages from our listeners later on. And if you'd like to contact us, remember, Mission Log relies on your participation. So that's why we want to hear from you. Help us spread the word by giving us a like or a share on Facebook or Twitter, where you'll find us at Mission Log Pod. Tell others about us there, and if you're inclined to leave us a review at Apple Podcasts, we'll be grateful, and we'll share those in a future supplemental. You can reach us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by calling 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Hey, we'll get to trivia in just a moment, but first, a word from Eagle Moss, Hero Collector, and the official Star Trek Online Starship Collection. Norman, and our dear listeners, there's so much to know about what Eagle Moss does with their starships. You already know that their starships are developed in partnership with CBS. They're officially authorized by CBS Studios. But these, this brand new collection of the official Star Trek Online starships, were developed with the creators of Star Trek Online, and they are available only from Eagle Moss Hero Collector. And what they want to do is start you out with the first two ships in the collection. The USS Gagarin, that's the Federation battlecruiser, and the USS Chimera, the Federation heavy destroyer. They're available right now, directly from Eagle Moss Shop, for only $29.95 with free shipping. You know, John, when I started playing the game back when it first launched, I never would have thought that Eagle Moss... Well, first of all, Elon Musk didn't exist back then. Secondly, I never <laughs> way, thought, way back then. Way back then. But I never thought that the ships from this particular 
expansion of the Star Trek universe would actually get its own product, and I think that's fantastic. And the neat thing is about these ships from Eagle Moss is that these are also based on the CGI models from the video game from Star Trek Online. They're so highly detailed. They're also made of die-cast metal and high-quality ABS materials, just like the standard Eagle Moss ships. They're hand-painted, and they are incredibly accurate to the models from the online game. Each ship also comes with a display base, just like the standard models, and the collector's magazine for all of the scenes, the info, the -the behind-the-scenes sketches, and insider information about all of the ships in the broader Star Trek online universe. Now, the 25th century USS Gagarin, NCC-97930, inherits a legacy of service and sacrifice from her 23rd century namesake, Seen in the battle with the Klingon Birds of Prey in the Star Trek Discovery episode, CV's Pacem Parabellum. Ooh, nicely done on the Latin. Thank Very you. Very good. All yeah. of my Latin paid off. <laughs> also, the USS Chimera, the NCC-97400, was created during the Federation Klingon War and is featured in Victory is Life, the game's expansion that focuses on Deep Space Nine and the Gamma Quadrant. An experimental ship, it is commanded by Nog, Starfleet's first Ferengi captain, and was released as a tribute to the late actor Aaron Eisenberg. See, all of that just makes it even better. As somebody who is not a huge STO player, I have to say these ships are beautiful to look at, and I love the stories that go along with them. So four additional ships are slated to join the collection soon, but available now for pre-order. They are the USS Andromeda, the Bortosk-class Klingon flagship, the USS Buran, and the Romulan Vastam-class Command Warbird. You can see them all online at herocollector.com slash STO. So for full details, including the comprehensive views of each ship and the ordering information, remember you can get started with the first two right away, that can all be found at herocollector.com slash STO. All right then, trivia for the ship. This, This ship, the episode, the ship. Here's your trivia. We have a story by Pam Wigginton and Rick Kaysen. They had the bare bones idea for a story in which Jim Hadar's ship was found and salvaged by the DS9 crew. That was good enough for Hans Beimler to take it and run with it, which is why he got the teleplay credit for this episode. Hans has been right there with Star Trek since season two of TNG, and we most recently discussed his work on the DS9 episode Body Parts. For Pam and Rick, well, this is their only credit in Hollywood. This was directed by Kim Friedman as Star Trek Watchers. We first met Kim back in Season 2 of DS9, where she directed The Wire, not only her first DS9, but her first gig directing any science fiction. Prior to that, Kim carved out quite a career directing sitcoms and nighttime dramas, getting her start on Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, And let it never be forgotten that she directed a full eight episodes of The Love Boat. While she's got two more episodes of DS9 to go, we will also catch up with her on Voyager. Now let's talk about those shooting locations. The exteriors were shot in Soledad Canyon, which is almost due north of Los Angeles, about a 45-minute drive, and just near Santa Clarita. We have seen this location before in Season 2's The Homecoming, and then more recently in Season 4's Indiscretion. Incidentally, if you were to travel about 40 minutes east of there down Soledad Canyon Road, you'd wind up where they shot Shore Leave on TOS, and you'd also be not too far from Vasquez Rocks. Soledad Canyon itself is hot, 
and unpredictable. It was brutal when they shot this episode, hotter than anyone on the crew had uh, expected or prepared for, which led to a lot of breaks being needed and immediate water and cool cloths to be distributed to the cast who were in costumes and some in extensive heavy makeup. In one outtake, actually, one of those Jem'Hadar soldiers fainted. He was okay, though, just overcome. Now, on set, uh, John Ease did the initial design work. This is the first time we've seen the interior of a Jem'Hadar ship, and he not only had to design that, but design it with the idea that it would be used upside down. That meant practical things like keeping the lighting out of the way so it wouldn't get destroyed by the actors walking around. It also meant designing the bridge in a way that you could tell it was indeed upside down. There are no sitting positions, but they decided early on to have the dead crew members, uh, represented here by dummies that were built up by Michael Westmore and his team, in order to give some point of reference. All right, on to guest stars. In Sinhoya, we get to see a Benzite for the first time since TNG is a matter of honor. Prior to that, it was coming of age. And don't be surprised there because Hans Beimler was the story editor on that episode. This is not only the first female Benzite, all right, okay, the only female Benzite uh, that we've had on track, but you'll notice that at least this one has outgrown that breathing apparatus that was such a trademark of the earlier two we had seen. The character we meet here is played by Hilary Shepard Turner. I don't want to spoil too much before Norman's recap, uh, but we won't have Ensign Hoya back again. Don't worry, though. Don't worry, Hillary will be back in another role very soon. We welcome back Ensign Munez, played by F.J. Rio. We mentioned him back when he first appeared on DS9 and Starship Down, then again for a shorter appearance in Hard Time. We will see more of F.J. in different roles on both Voyager and Enterprise. Finally, the producers had intended for the first female Vorta we met, Eris, to come back for this episode. You may recall the Season 2 episode, The Jim Hadar, in which Molly Hagen played the role. Molly wasn't available, so the new Vorta we meet here, Kilana, was played by Caitlin Hopkins. In addition to the usual TV guest spots, Caitlin turns up in feature films as well, like Crocodile Dundee in Los Angeles, and in As Good As It Gets. Since 2010, she's been teaching and directing live theater, and she's been working on a documentary about the 1966 film Dutchman called Dutchman Revisited. We will catch Caitlin one more time in an appearance on Voyager. Just sit right back and you'll hear a tale, a tale of a fateful trip. You probably know the rest. mineral survey for Cormeline on the inhabited planet of Torga IV in the Gamma Quadrant, Chief O'Brien takes a moment to teach young crewman Munez the fine art of how to properly feign taking a break during a rather lengthy hike. Meanwhile, back in base camp, Captain Sisko, Dax, and Worf analyze the potential supply line opportunity for a motherlode vein of Cormeline that Dax recently discovered. Suddenly, from an orbiting Federation runabout, the Benzite Ensign Hoya Contact Sisko, alerting him of an unknown vessel that has fallen out of warp and is plummeting towards his location. It crashes intact as Sisko orders Hoya to scan for survivors. 
She cannot penetrate the ship's hull with sensors, so Sisko has her beam the away team directly to the crash site. Upon seeing the smoldering hulk buried halfway into the side of a mountain, Worf identifies the vessel immediately. It is a warship. A Jem'Hadar warship. Act 1. Dax informs Sisko that her tricorder scan shows the warship as mostly intact as O'Brien and Munez gain access to the ship through a troop-sized deployment hatch. Once inside, the Federation away team scours every inch of the ship and on the bridge, uncovering the fate of the crew. They were all killed. Evidence suggests that their bones were instantly pulverized from their inertial dampener failure and immediate acceleration, which would have thrown the Jem'Hadar crew against bulkheads with bone-crushing force. Seeing this as being the military intelligence find of at least a decade, Sisko has the chief start on a plan to get this ship spaceworthy to haul back to Deep Space Nine and in the hands of Federation intelligence. Knowing that the runabout's tractor beam isn't strong enough, Sisko contacts Kira on Deep Space Nine for assistance from a ship with a little more muscle. Back on Deep Space Nine, Odo escorts Quark and Dr. Bashir to Major Kira, where she is already making preparations to bring the Defiant to aid Captain Sisko. It turns out that Bashir needed to import Regalian flea spiders to create a drug that would help the Major, but Quark, being ever the opportunist, had something else smuggled in as well. In a rush to get underway, Kira leaves Quark and the Doctor in the care of Odo's capable hands. Back on Torga 4, the Chief and Munez are formulating a plan to use the Jem'Hadar ship thrusters to push it out further, making it easier for the Defiant to tow it from the rock face. Suddenly, Ensign Hoya alerts Captain Sisko that another Jem'Hadar warship has arrived, and tragically, as Sisko orders them to try and escape, all he hears over comms is crackling static, as he, the Chief, and Munez watch the fiery remains of their runabout crew fall from the sky. Act 2. Sisko and his crew are caught completely by surprise by a Jem'Hadar strike team, which has materialized right on top of them, killing science officer Talor and wounding Munez with an energy weapon burst to his stomach. Sisko and his crew are forced to retreat behind the solid walls of the Jem'Hadar warship, regroup, and literally dress their wounds, especially Munez, whose stomach wound is bleeding out more than it should. After searching the ship for useful technology to use against their besiegers, Captain Sisko was hailed by Kilana, the Vorta in command of the newly arrived Jamhadar warship that just destroyed Sisko's runabout, killing three Federation crewmen. Curiously, she offers to meet Sisko face to face with one guard each. With Worf carefully watching over Sisko's meeting with Kalana, she approaches the captain with a disarming flattery consistent with Vorta diplomacy. She clearly makes it known that she wants her property back. However, Captain Sisko cites a time honored human custom of declaring salvage rights upon a crashed ship and a dead crew. Kilana describes that the Dominion doesn't respect those rights and offers him refreshments during their negotiations. As she continues to try and charm her way towards a more agreeable resolution, a lone and camouflaged Jem'Hadar warrior slips past Worf and beams directly into the ship. Act 3. Kilana plies Sisko with refreshments and an offer to ferry his entire away team back to Deep Space Nine and to tend to the wounded. All that is needed is for Sisko to surrender the wreckage, but he firmly refuses her offer. Inside the warship, Chief O'Brien and Dax discover a foreign device newly planted on one of the bulkheads, and before they could react, that same Jem'Hadar soldier decloaks and overpowers them, but is killed before stabbing the chief. Killed by a very conscious Munez. 
Tending to his wound, the chief and Cisco surmise that there is an anticoagulant in Munya's blood that was delivered by the Jem'Hadar weapon. Without proper medical care on board the ship, Munya's will die, a cold and callous fact that Worf shares and one the chief doesn't even want to entertain or let Munya's overhear. O'Brien steps to Worf and makes it clear that Munya's only hope is to keep fighting, and before the situation comes to a head, Dax separates the two, trying to let cooler heads prevail for Munya's sake. As Sisko tends to an ever-worsening Munya's, Kalana contacts the captain and apologizes for her earlier deception. She wishes to meet again, unarmed and alone. Soon after, they convene outside the ship, and Kalana freely admits that there is something on board the wreckage that she wants. As she tries to negotiate an amicable way forward, a mutual distrust leads to an irreconcilable impasse. Knowing that diplomacy has failed, Kilana beams away as Sisko takes cover back inside the ship as both he and Worf escape what is to become the overture of an orbital bombardment. Act 4 As the bombing continues, Sisko has the chief tie into the ship's sensors, and in doing so, they realize that Ultritium concussion shells are being used to rattle their resolve and force them to surrender. Knowing that there is something on board that Kalana wants, Sisko has Dax and Worf comb the ship for anything. However, Munya's condition worsens to the point of delirium. Tensions rise between crewmates as they begin turning on each other. O'Brien is fed up with Worf's inhumane attitude towards Munya's, and Sisko is tired of Dax's sarcasm. Knowing that Starfleet discipline is the only way out of this downward spiral in morale, Sisko orders everyone to start acting like professional Starfleet officers who have specific duties to attend to post-haste. That means Worf and O'Brien to try and get the engines and weapons working and for Dax to find the proverbial needle in the haystack. As for Munoz, his orders are clear, but not so simple, as Captain Sisko orders him to stay alive. The chief repairs enough of the main systems to attempt escaping the rock formation, but the wreckage is too far buried and embedded, creating a power overload during takeoff that cripples the engines permanently. The Defiant is now their only way to salvage the ship and to get home alive. Turning to Munoz for help, the chief discovers that his young comrade has died from his injuries as silence and grief wash over the crew. Isolated and alone with his thoughts, Sisko vows not to have his crew's death be in vain as Dax tries to give him clarity of all that has transpired. But their conversation is cut short as strange shimmering drops fall from the ceiling. As they both look up, they pull and train their weapons on the shimmering and shape-shifting form of a changeling. Act 5. With phasers at the ready, Dax scans the changeling and discovers that it is dying. Instead of lashing out, the changeling instead writhes in agony for a brief moment, then stops shimmering and finally turns to dust as it cries out, one last time and loud enough for Kelana and her Jem'Adar to hear. Knowing that they have lost all of their bargaining power, Sisko and Dax prepare for the worst. However, only Kelana beams directly aboard Sisko's ship. Both she and Sisko lament the fact that these senseless deaths are on their hands, knowing losses on both sides could have been prevented if they worked harder to trust each other. Making the smallest concession for her losses, Sisko allows Kelana to take some of the founder's remains with her. She leaves with a parting shot. You must be pleased with yourself. You have this ship to take back to them. I hope it was worth it. As the Defiant heads home with the warship in tow, Sisko is deep in thought about the five crewmen who died during this mission. Dax once again tries to comfort him, pointing out that all five of them knew the risks and died believing in the uniform and what it represents. 
but it's only a small consolation, as Cisco knows that if he had to do it all over again, he would have sacrificed them so that the technology discovered in the Jem'Hadar warship may very well save thousands, if not millions of lives in the future. Finally, in the cargo bay, Chief O'Brien sits while watching over the casket of Ensign Munoz. Worf enters and tells the chief what he's doing is akin to the Klingon tradition called Akvo, protecting the body of a fallen warrior from predators as they make their journey to Stovacor. Worf sits with O'Brien with respect to Munoz, and the chief responds, I'm sure Kike would have liked that. The end. Heartbroken again, Norman. <laughs> right Heartbroken that I didn't make a mistake on Nina's name. <laughs> but <laughs> Well, look, there is so much to say about Munoz here, and uh, I obviously we'll get into it more. Uh, but right at the start, I, I just I feel like I have to point out uh, the, the somewhat maybe from the beginning, the forced camaraderie between him and O'Brien. Um, and it's it's not to like take this episode down a peg because honestly I feel like they're doing everything right in the script. Like they gave them some humor, they gave them some things to bond over. Um, so even in the best of hands, doing that kind of thing in a script like this, it will feel forced, you know. Um, so. I, you know, I, I like right at the top, they decide, okay, we're going to go with age as a thing. That, that'll that be one of the little the little gimmicks that we use to get between Munoz and O'Brien is uh, playing between their age difference. And, and, and these are not bad choices, but I, I, I feel like it, I don't know, did, did you have this reaction as well that, okay, they, they have a couple of great actors, they have a great idea, they've got to build rapport. How do you even do that? and make it feel natural, make it feel earned. See, I actually thought that it felt natural and earned. Really? To be honest with you. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's because, I, now I, I can see where you're coming from, if we didn't get uh, like their you know, rapport built in Starship Down and in, uh, in, in Hard Time, because he kept repeating, you know, even these like smaller occurrences mm-hmm. where, you know, at least the chief, because, you know, the chief, we, we know that he's a non-com. We know that he's yeah. not an officer. Yeah. And I love the fact that they built that at the very beginning where, <laughs> I mean, I think it's funny that O'Brien's like, hey, take a look at this rock while I take a breather. And Munoz calls him <laughs> so completely like early on that. It's like, hey, look, I know you're old. There aren't any rolling hills in Ireland or rolling yeah, mountains. Yeah. There are rolling hills. And you're the old man. And I, I don't know. I just, I, I always I, felt... It's a good bit. It it is a good bit. I I just, you know, again, if somebody hands you this story and says, here, script this and script it in a way that we feel their relationship and we feel their bond and we we get it that they're buds like you've really you know, you've got your work cut out for you. There's only so much you can do to get that across in just a few minutes and a handful of scenes, you know, taken Mm -hmm. in its totality of the show. So I, I like that we had Munoz before. I remember pointing him out in Starship Down that I really liked him, and I, I liked the others that we met along the way. I wanted more out of them, yeah, uh, yeah. for sure. So I, I don't know. That it's one of those things. I don't want to lead this off like I'm uh, like I'm pointing out flaws here in the show because there's a lot of good stuff to talk about. The, no mm-hmm. question about it. Um, but it, it's one of those things that the more I watched, uh, it's just like. Yeah, you know, they, they kind of had to do this by rote to make sure that they got those moments in 
did they always feel earned to me? So I, I was curious if they felt earned to you. And I'm, I'm glad they did. Because, yeah. again, I think they're written well. I just feel like you're, you're kind of up against a wall here when you have to do that for the show. I mean, you know, their relationship is expedited very quickly at the beginning. But I do like the fact that there are certain hints that they drop in which lead to other scenes later. Like when, when Munez calls him sir, and then mm-hmm. O'Brien's like, don't call me sir. I'm not an officer. You know, I don't like that. And then that leads to another scene, which, which explains the kind of like Munoz predicament even further. And right. I, I, I don't know. I, I kind of like I love how he he's very aware of himself. He's very aware of his abilities and the courage that he has to muster and to show kind of like his grit and his and his uh, his quality in front of all the other officers. I feel that if if in fact that he wasn't an officer and he's just kind of like this. I mean, he was an ensign, so I guess it's an officer, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he, yeah he'd be the lowest. Um, yeah, but actually, the it lowest would be commissioned. Yeah. It would be O'Brien that would be calling him sir. Yeah, but it's like, right? the, but the yeah. role reversal is you have this grizzled old war vet. You kind of like you, you equate uh, O'Brien to being like kind of like the Sarge, right? Yeah, and then you right, have right. like this this new recruit, albeit came, coming out of officer school, but he's just so green and he's just so fresh, and he has this whole career in front of him. And he looks to the older statesman for guidance and for seasoning, right? And right, I don't know. Right. I, 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 I like the way that they played it off. I, I thought that it was – I thought it was well done. And I, th- I thought it was earned. All right. Fair enough. Um, one thing that I am going to say here is that uh, for the planet where they are, uh, three weeks away, to me, still entirely too close to just set up a mining operation and hope all is good with the Jim Hadar. <laughs> I mean, there look. There have got to be places in the Alpha Quadrant that you could work on instead of saying like, "Well, we we have this spot. You got to go through the wormhole to get there, uh, and it's three weeks away from those people that will kill us any chance they get. Are we good? Should we just set up shop here? <laughs> you know, unless that mining operation takes a total of uh, two weeks and six days, then <laughs> no, no, just get out." I mean, I'm sure that there's a description for what cormaline is used for. I mean, it's, you know, it's not as, I say, ubiquitous as, say, you know, dilithium crystals or, right, or things right. that the Federation has mined before. So it, it would have probably served the story a little bit better. It's like, oh, we found this motherload, like Dax said, of cormaline, and it is so valuable. It's worth the risk, you know, of yeah, setting up shop yeah. here. You know, because right. if we got this, we get a jump start on, you know, technology that we need to build you know, for the upcoming, you know, uh, incursion of the Dominion when that happens. And maybe this is something like way the Dominion is like, no, 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 no. If you find this, this is going to give you a leg up on what's, what's going on. Um, right. One thing, though, and I watched the opening sequences many times. I don't think we ever got a name for the runabout. And we usually get names. You are correct. Yeah, we don't know. Um, I, I read somewhere else that that brings the total now down to three. Uh, so uh, unless because they they made a thing of it in an earlier season where it, remember Cisco said like oh okay to the chief I like, go build a new runabout <laughs> you know they're they're, they're handing out names uh, for these so yeah now we're down to three but they don't name which one it was that uh, got destroyed just too bad it would have been interesting that if like say they brought back the Volga because we we got the Volga in uh, mm-hmm. uh, the, a previous episode in um, Apocalypse Rising, I believe yeah, it was. Yeah. And we got the stock footage of that. So <laughs> it would have been interesting <laughs> right. to, to have seen, oh, the final fate of the Volga. <laughs> yeah. Right? One thing, though, and um, again, this is just kind of like one of those criticisms that I have with almost every show that I watch. 
it's about firefights. It's about finding cover. It's about not exposing yourself. And it's about knowing that the Jem'Hadar should be soldiers of a certain quality that can run and gun and hit blind spots whenever they want. And when they were retreating into the ship, too many of them, especially Captain Sisko, were standing straight up in the open and not moving. And I'm like, what's going on here? You guys should be scrambling on your feet on the ground, you know, finding any possible cover because those Jem'Hadar are trained expert killers and would kill you running and gunning. Yeah, I, he's standing there on the ship in his red and black uniform in broad daylight. Right. <laughs> pretty, pretty easy to pick off. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and speaking of those people in that firefight, we barely met Talor, because he, he does get a name in here. He had cool makeup, uh, uh, which is about it. That's all we get to know about him. Uh, played by stuntman Ken Lesko. Um, we didn't really get a good, good shot of him, but he had that kind of ridge down his head and those ears kind of reminded me of uh, Way to Eden. Uh, at the end of TOS, uh, uh, Dr. Severin's giant uh, ears. There was a funny line to point out. Uh, they describe the, uh, the the liquid crystals as being a dangerous aphrodisiac. And Quark has that great line, what's love without danger? <laughs> Just, uh, you know, nice. It's like a little throwaway, but so perfectly Quark in the moment. Yeah. And I love the fact that they paired up now, kind of like this, this conspirator's uh, uh, you know, coupling with Quark and, and Bashir, like Bashir's like, no, 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 wait, hold on a second. Yeah, yeah. I was just supposed to make an anti-venom, some some type of like you know poultice for Kira and yeah. and and her pregnancy. I don't know what you were doing. <laughs> Nothing to do with <laughs> right? me. Yeah. But now I'm a co-conspirator. Yeah. Great, that's going on my permanent resume. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the things I, I found interesting is that you know you have a tricorder that can tell that the ship is intact and that the power systems are this and all of these specific technological uh, needs are, are addressed. But why wouldn't they use the tricorder to find out what was going on with Munia specifically? Like, they never really figure it out except for surmising that, oh, you're bleeding all the time. Right. Something's in your blood. Like, brrr, you know, open up the tricorder, and that was my tricorder effect, by the yeah, way. That was good. Tra- yeah, it was trademark. very realistic, yeah. You know, but like, <laughs> Dax, being a science officer, close to being medical, you know, yeah. she would have been able to at least figure out something. Right. You would think. You yeah. would think, yeah. And speaking of uh, the wounds that he has, uh, Munoz says that, oh, he's had worse transporter burns. And uh, hang on, uh, stop just a moment. Transporter burns are a thing? So, like, uh, on top of all the other problems with transporters, he just kind of blows that off. Like, yeah, that's just the thing we all know about, right? You know, transporters burn you. Like, what? What? Like, they use transporters literally all the time. That, that's like if I thought, you know, oh, you know, every time I get in my car, I get a, you know, second degree burn somewhere. But, but you know, that's just, that's what it's like driving a car. Everybody knows that. <laughs> Well, Quark has an answer for that. You know, obviously he's going to be selling some type of illegal, like, SPF 5 billion. <laughs> yes. Right? You know, yeah, for, trans- yeah. for transporter burns, yeah. go to Quark's. He's Here got what go. you need. Yeah, rub this on you. <laughs> My criticisms of the episode, and I love this episode, and I'll get to that in our, in our mm-hmm. observations and notes. But things like combat sequences bother me when they're not done right. And with the Jem'Hadar's reputation as being these these, you know, these uh, genetically modified expert killers, mm-hmm. wouldn't they just have been able to beam directly into the ship like a surgical strike team and take everybody out without even firing a shot? 
Yeah, see, you, you would think that. And speaking of good fighters, I, I kind of felt that way about Dax, because you've got one Jem'Hadar soldier who goes in facing off with O'Brien and Dax in that moment. I know we had to give the moment to Munez, but Dax has been kicking butt all over this series, mm-hmm. uh, particularly in the last couple of seasons. I, I, like th- That seemed unfairly matched uh, to me. She should have gotten in a few more uh, licks in that. Oh, by the way, uh, O'Brien, it's it's in that scene that uh, uh, Munoz comes out with the phaser, kills the Jem'Hadar as he's fighting uh, Dax and O'Brien. And O'Brien makes that joke that uh, Munoz has been gold-bricking all along. Uh, First of all, cool that it's kind of an outdated word that they just slipped in. Also, incidentally, the word that uh, disqualified me in the sixth-grade spelling bee. Uh, So... That that gold uh, brought back, yeah, gold bricking, and and here's why. To this day, I remember, um, I had never heard the word before, not not used like that. And then when I heard it, and, and I I think I asked him to use it in a sentence or define it or whatever it was, I put it together in my head very easily, just like oh sure it's G O L D B R I C K I N G. But I did that. I blasted through it so fast that I transposed a couple of letters. haunts me to this day haunts me to this day yeah that was your post-ganglionic nerve yes see exactly so dr Bashir and i have that in in common yeah so they didn't use they didn't use the fine example of can i use that in a sentence please or can you use that in a sentence please ensign unia's was gold bricking his wound (laughs) now if they gave you that sentence you would have gotten the word yeah oh fine yeah (laughs) <laughs> gold bricking that's an interesting way of uh, of of using that word i mean i i, I would have used like sandbagging right because sandbagging yeah, is yeah, like, yeah, a, yeah. like a similar thing right yeah um so i wanted to bring this up when you were talking about uh the actress in the trivia but mm-hmm. uh the um, but kilana the actress who played kilana yes i could not help but draw a linda carter parallel to her every single time uh, that i saw her uh-huh. No, no, it has a lot to do with her hair, you know, being that that that, that beautiful brunette. Yeah, but it was done in the very same style like Linda Carter's was as Diana Prince in the uh, 1970s Wonder Woman, and she had the same kind of earrings, those just like those large red beaded type earrings. Yeah, that Wonder Woman wore. Yeah, and those beautiful uh, bright blue eyes, and it was yeah. just like this yeah. is Linda Carter, like almost reincarnated as a Vorta, and I couldn't keep my eyes off her. That that see all right. That's an interesting way to put it. I, I I kept thinking about, you know, when you write a script, when you cast a show, when you direct it, and in her case, Caitlin Hopkins, when you act it, it there are choices that get made every step of the way. And and I found that with this character, they made some very interesting choices. And and you can say that it was kind of an easy choice to make her sexy. She She's very alluring. That is not to say, by the way, that Jeffrey Combs is not sexy as a Vorta. Mm. Let's just get that, you know, right out <laughs> right away. <laughs> but it, it seems like the more you play with the Vorta, though, it, it's sort of like salespeople who will use whatever tools they have to manipulate you into what they're selling. You know, flattery or being deferential or using coercion, seduction in this case, and then maybe resorting to threats. But it, it was interesting to see her kind of lead with so many layers of that. But you also cannot deny that they're playing up this very attractive quality of her to sure. uh, uh, to to bring us in and and you know bring in the characters as well. 
One other really important thing here about Kalana the Vorta, uh, she has some food. She has food. I, I got to mention that. Kilavas and something to drink. We never see what they're drinking, but the Kilavas, I, I'm just going to go like the Vorta version of dates or maybe dried apricots or something like that. I couldn't really see it. Of course, Cisco turns it down because it might be poison to him. But it raises a really important question uh, for Kilana or any Vorta, for that matter, traveling with Jim Hadar. Is there always just a Jim Hadar soldier behind her uh, ready with a tray of food and drinks? Uh, because suddenly, to me, much more desirable to have some Jim Hadar around at all times. Well, it's part of their genetic programming. You have yeah. to have, you know, uh, you know the, the, the servant's needs programmed into the Jim Hadar because you don't, you don't know when you're going to have, you know, uh, Kilava at the ready when you yeah. need it. You yeah. yeah. Uh, the interesting thing, though, about that scene, uh, and I, I kind of uh, bookend it with, with when we met Wayun the first time. Uh, and, uh, you know, when, you know, when uh, he appeared with the Jem'Hadar, they had to work together. That was uh, for, no, to the death, during to the death. Mm-hmm. And she actually, she kind of executed the, the Vorta playbook almost to a T, where you play up the respect and admiration and you try and drop the guard of, of whoever your, you know, your asset is going to be at the time. In this case, it's going to be Cisco trying to get what she wants from him. So she tried the charm, you know, she tried the flattery, you know, she tried the gifts, she tried the food. And then yeah. you could see over time with each uh, subsequent meeting, the tactics change from coercion to threat. And to finally, uh, this, this kind of, uh, after the fact, the, res- the resolution. But you know that she was going through kind of like the cold collars playbook. You know, they have that flow chart. If they say no, then go to this. If they say yes, then go to this. If they say no, then go to this. And you keep trying and trying and trying until you're out of options. And then what happens happened. It, it's like a new book. It's uh, How to Win Friends and Influence Starfleet, written by all of the Vorta. The whole episode came and went and nobody checked the glove compartment. I bet the owner's manual was in there the whole time. Or maybe just the changeling. So John, earlier when we were talking about the relationship with O'Brien and Munoz, that's something in this episode that I felt very earned and very compelling to watch. And, and here's why, because rarely do you see a main character and a support character build this kind of relationship that's very meaningful within the actual episode. Obviously, we know the circumstances that happened to Munoz and how hard that O'Brien tried to fight to keep him alive and the honor of doing that, even though that Worf had his disagreement with that. But there's mm-hmm. definitely a father and son type relationship going on where O'Brien kind of like wants to pass down his wisdom, you know, to this very young officer, even though that O'Brien is his subordinate in a way. There is something that's very, I think, just genuine. It's, it's very organic for me. I felt that there's that great kind of band of brothers type scenario where you're dealing with this, again, this older grizzled war veteran who's trying to make sure that his enlisted men stay alive. And this leads a lot to a lot of what we've seen with O'Brien being this war veteran, this person who hasn't had the luxury of sitting in the quarterback chair 
when his superior officers are telling him to go fight wars, you know, the Cardassian War in, in particular, and how it led to his PTSD and hard time, or compounded upon that. So yeah. I like that with Munoz and O'Brien. I like the fact that O'Brien's like, you know what? You got some things to learn, kid. I'll take care of you. And just, you know, keep your ears open, keep your eyes open, and you'll learn a few things, and maybe you'll get home alive. It's really, see, it's the kind of relationship that I really wish we'd had more of in Star Trek up to this point, just overall. Uh, Because when we do see sort of uh, a relationship between a superior and a subordinate, um, sometimes it, it... it's usually not the great ones that stand out. Like uh, at the very beginning of Next Gen, you had this kind of weird, contentious, like uh, Picard almost uh, hazing Riker to given this trial by fire to to make sure that he's okay to be the first officer. And then you've got uh, Riker then with some very strange relationships with the people who are subordinate to him, uh, like Ensign Rowe. And, and you know, this is a a more kind of like heartfelt, genuine way to approach that, uh, where it's people who have been through not the same exact experiences, but but some similar experiences. We know that Munions has things to learn. We know that O'Brien has this very rich history, this very complex history as a character. Um, I, I think the thing that would have made it even better for me is that if we'd gotten Munez in, say, a half dozen episodes instead of the three that, that we get. This is the third and final, obviously, <laughs> final time that we we see him in this role. Um and, you know, look, it's unfair because hindsight is twenty twenty. It's sort of like when you have the script idea and go, oh, wow, this is how we have to do this beat in this show. Man, if only we could have gone back four or five or six more episodes to really flesh out this relationship. Um, that said, at least they got to do this with Munez and didn't just create a new character to have this moment. So mm-hmm. we, we, I, I, for me anyway, I, I feel like I got, I got partway there. Um, but again, it's like the, the constraint of a 48 minute show and you've got to get in, not just the plot line, but you have to get in these character moments as well and, and make sure that we all feel it, you know? Um, let's talk about, I'm going to lighten it up here. Let's talk about, uh, the death of Munoz. Uh, <laughs> so, cause uh, feel good scene of the summer. Yes. Yes. You know, that, that's very central to the episode here, but, but what I, I think was this interesting, uh, question that was raised is this debate between O'Brien's and Worf's different approaches. And the, you've got Dax sort of running interference there. Um, is it better in your opinion, to face a harsh reality or to accept a a comforting delusion. Because I would say if you go back and listen to pretty much any episode of Mission Log, uh, I will say without fail, it's better to just have the truth. Whatever the truth is, like, let us go find that truth and let's deal with that. Because that, that is where... That is where we'll be able to form accurate and informed opinions about a course of action. Mm-hmm. Um, but is there some comfort or some benefit 
to hearing encouraging words, even if they aren't true. And and I think what we see here in this episode is maybe the best version of that. So Munez isn't being sold a bill of goods. Uh, it, he isn't being told like, oh, hey, the Defiant's right around the corner. They'll be here any minute now. They're, they're not lying to him in that respect. And and they're not doing this thing like, oh, you know, you, you, you'll you be in a better place if you die. Like, they're not, there's none of this stuff. It's just sort of, hang on. You hang on. We are going to do everything we can for you. That's all he's being told. I mean, you know, Cisco says, your order is don't die, <laughs> which is, yeah. is, is great. Um, and his friends and his crewmates, they're there for him. Now, Worf says bluntly, he will not see tomorrow. Says that mm-hmm. to uh, O'Brien and with Dax overhearing it. Strong line. And what I like there is that they're writing Worf consistently because that is the kind of thing that he would say seriously, like it is here, or as a joke, as, as he has done before, where he's saying exactly the blunt reality uh, with no sense of a, a filter uh, in place. Um, so it's very clear, it's very obvious you have to give that line to a guy like Worf. Um, but how do you feel about this moment? How do you feel about this debate. I've tried to sort of rationalize it as best I can. Well, this is a really central point of this episode, one Mm -hmm. of probably two that that really I'd like making mention of. And the question that is raised to me when War said what he said is, is there honor in just surrendering to the inevitable? Is Mm -hmm. that honorable? Because I've always believed that as a warrior or as a soldier, the honor is trying to stay alive and get home. That's what Miles is all about. He's like, yeah. I want you to survive. I want you to live. I'll teach you any tricks in the books. But the biggest trick that I can teach you is to, is to get behind the fact that there's still hope. There's still always the option. Isn't that the Starfleet way? Yeah, right. right. And that's, right. that's where I still come to a little bit of, a, of a contention with what Worf says because, sure, that's the Klingon approach and you know and attitude towards what's happening with Munoz but Worf is still a Starfleet officer and he has mm-hmm. to by nature of example have has to toe the line of there's always the possibility of hope there's always the possibility of getting out alive whether it's on your own uh on the onus of you staying alive or all of us working together to keep you alive we don't give up on each other. We don't give up. That's the Starfleet mm-hmm. mantra, right? Mm-hmm. And when he says, nope, he's going to die. Let's move on with it. Just tell him what the, the cold hard truth is. I don't think that that was fair. I don't think that, especially in front of somebody, instead of, you know, like, that's basically like if you're on a team and you're getting, you know, pretty beaten up by another team and all of a sudden your quarterback says, we're done, give it up. You know, let's just pack it in and go hit the showers. Yeah. You know, yeah. because it's not necessarily the morale for for now. It's the morale for later, right? Right. What, what does it do to the team, the teamwork and the camaraderie when you start having that type of mentality or attitude infiltrate the entirety of what you're going through? And I think that that, that decision, or when Worf said that, it starts the downward spiral of them turning on each other because they're all starting to give up. They're all starting to give up hope. They're all starting to see there's no way out of this situation. There's a darkness that's coming that we can't beat. That's not Starfleet. 
Hmm. Starfleet is mm-hmm. always about trying to find a way out. And, and to really put uh, a finer point on it, it's actually, this is all actually Cisco's fault. Oh. Because Cisco should have thought of his people first and the prize second. The prize was the ship. And if he let Kilana get what she wanted, he could have gotten Muniz out of there and gotten him help. But, uh, and that, that's the question that I wrote down in my, my notes for myself and for you, is Cisco justified in withholding his trust from Kalana? He's dealt with Jim Hadar before. He's dealt with Vorta before. Is he, uh, look, she says, this is what I'll do. I, you, you know, you, you can all go home. I'll, I'll get you home safely. We just have to have what's in this ship. Um, would you take that deal if you had been through what Cisco has been through with with other threatening? I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, but but you know, enemies who have come to kill you in the past. They got out to the death by making that mm-hmm. alliance. You know, so it's not like they didn't make an alliance with Vorta before with a completely, you know, a much larger cadre of of Jem'Hadar in their presence. And I think that and I know that, you know, I'm I'm rewriting it and that's not fair. That's not what we're talking about here. But it does. But but it it is a central point of the episode, though. I mean, this is the thing that haunts Cisco at the end. Uh, is, you know, I didn't trust her. She also didn't trust him. But that, that is, that is the, one of the dramatic denouements. So I, I think you're right to point this out. Well, I think that if Cisco really wanted to have his cake and eat it too, get everything on his checklist checked off, he would have found a way. There's always, kind of, you know, there's always that Starfleet way. We've got to find a way. Mm-hmm. You know, whether we make a small concession and just let Kalana under heavily armed guard, under Wharf, under Phaser Point, search the ship, and find what she wants, okay, now it's time for you to hold up your bargain. You're not leaving this ship until we're out of here. You have what you want in your hand. Mm-hmm. I don't care what it is, but as soon as, you, as soon as you see that beam out, we are going to destroy this ship, right? Mm. So there has to be a way for, you know, for uh, Cisco to be able to protect his people too. And I think that that's, that is the responsibility of a captain, to make sure that your crew gets home alive if you have the ability to do it. And in this case, I think that Cisco justifies the ends by getting that ship, by sacrificing whatever crew he needs to in order to do that. I'm not saying he's wrong. I'm just saying that I think he puts that as the precedent over everything else. Mm -hmm. And I see O'Brien being that, you know what? This is what happens with the brass all the time. You know, it's like that line in Starship Troopers, you know, the, uh, um, you know, the, the, um, the military does the dying, you know, and the fleet does the flying. Mm-hmm. Right. 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 And I can see that being a sore point for O'Brien later on. You know, it's like you, you, you could have gotten Muniz out of there. You could have gotten him help. But you decided to take the ship instead. Is the ship worth one life? And isn't that like the great conundrum of what we do in Star Trek? Is one life worth the life of how many? Potentially, because there's right. no guarantee. No, but I mean, that, that's why Dax's line at the end is important. You know, how many did this save? Did it save 5,000 people? Did it save 5 million people? There's no way to know that. 
but uh, obviously Cisco and everybody else who survived that ha- has to live with that idea. They they have to justify to themselves that the mission was worth it. Not saying it isn't. I mean, it, it's certainly not a lie that they accomplished something by doing it. But at the same time, yeah, I mean, the the first, oh, if I may uh, uh, invoke the name of a Star Trek episode, the first duty <laughs> in this case um, should for the captain be to protect his crew. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, another thing with Worf and, and to try and kind of like um, round out this part of the discussion, I also found his emotional detachment from Munia's as some type of defense mechanism for his own feelings, for his own emotions, mm-hmm. because I think he's also playing from the from the standpoint of if I don't become emotionally attached to the people that I'm serving with, then I can actually do my job and perform better because I'm not like the chief is. He's not distracted Mm. from doing the job that he's supposed to do. You can see that in the episode. The chief is always one eye on doing his job, the other eye and most of his heart on Munoz. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. But Worf is like, "Mm, no, you know, he's dead. I move on. I got to get the rest of us out of here. And, and I, I can see that. I can see that from him being purely a Klingon warrior. But like I said, when he's wearing that uniform, like like uh, Cisco said at the end of of when he was on trial, he says, "Once you're in this uniform, you uphold the principles of the Federation." Mm-hmm. Right. But at the same time, though, those principles are pretty muddied in this situation because even Cisco himself isn't upholding the principles of the Federation. Yeah. No, it's true. I I do also kind of wonder, and this goes back to the, you know, how how we're dealing with the impending death of Munoz, which is there's kind of this cultural thing as well. And Worf's culture, at least his attachment to it, his uh, understanding of it, is that, uh, well, Munoz is a guy who died in battle or, or was wounded and now inevitably is going to die in battle. So to a Klingon, that's okay. That's better than okay. He's on his way to Stovacor. Um, so there is that part that dispassionately Worf can sort of turn off and say, yeah, that happened. That happens all the time. Now I'm going to move on to what's really important. And that is you know, doing my job to protect the rest of my crew. Mm-hmm. I'd like to turn this a little bit on, um, on Kilana because I found her character really engaging to watch for a variety of different reasons. Of course, as I said before, there's a, a Linda Carter-esque you know, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, aesthetic that's going on, which is very attractive She's to me. She's wonderful, yeah. But at the same time, though, because of the way that the Vorta use diplomacy as their first rule of engagement, it seems that that already, in and of itself, already put off Cisco to not trust her. It seems that I've seen this before. What's your next step? Because if I know the Vorta playbook, this is Cisco kind of talking in his head, then you're going to do this. And if I say this, then you're going to do this, which proves the point that now I know that I can't trust you because you've hit three of the checklists of what a Vorta does. And you're just going yeah. through the Vorta playbook. But at the same time, though, I actually do believe that she was trying to negotiate some type of um, mutual agreement that everyone come out can come out a winner in in some respect. But this is a great question, though. How do you tell the difference? Like if you've if you've dealt with 
Vorta who were insincere, who were manipulative, who were using these tricks and going down the checklist uh, the first time to get under your skin and, and get what they want out of you. And then you meet one who is sincere, as it turns out later, but doing the exact same things. How do you tell the difference? And the point is you can't tell the difference until the very end and you know the outcome. There's no way to tell. You know, I, I, I know that I sort of in a, in a less consequential version, you know, uh, we've all like been in a store or, you know, something complicated like shopping for a car or a mattress, which for some reason is worse than shopping for a car. And, you know, every <laughs> every salesperson, true. it is true, right? Uh, every salesperson is sort of selling you the bill of goods from the minute you walk onto their property. And uh, that that is an immediate turnoff. And I just sort of want to put up my hand and say, like, no, 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 just please, please, please don't don't do the song and dance. Don't do the whole thing. Like, let's just let's just get down to brass tacks, please, <laughs> because I will not be able to deal with all of the schmoozing and all of the uh, the, the little, you know, going down the checklist for all the tricks to gain my confidence. And that's, uh, you know, that's why con man is short for confidence man you know mm -hmm. yeah yeah no i i understand where you're getting at with that but at the, at the same time though i think that you know uh there's no better teacher uh than experience in life and knowing what he has experienced with vorta before i think that he was more well equipped knowing to not trust her and to find ways to find countermeasures as they move forward, because if he was playing the diplomacy game, of which I think he wasn't uh, really embracing in their negotiations, he would have led her down a certain path of trust while distrusting her at the same time. Garrick would have been superb mm. in this instance, yeah. you know, because there that's you how he yeah. thinks. You know, there's, there's always, there are always two steps forward for every one step of of gaining or giving ground, right? Mm -hmm. So, of course, Cisco is like, I, of course he shouldn't trust her. She's the enemy. The Jem'Hadar are the enemy. They're the enemy. But at the same time, though, if you play it right, you can manipulate your enemy to your advantage up to a point to get what you need to get done. And I think that could have happened if he was willing to go a little further in the game. So I believe Cisco needed to be playing a little uh, 3D chess here rather than uh, 2D chess, is what you're saying. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, um, he's, he's intelligent, yeah. but not experienced. His pattern mm -hmm. indicates two-dimensional thinking. Shape up, ship out. Here's where we learn what it's all about. You know, Norman, it's been said that you can't have Star Trek without a ship. And uh, finally, here we are in the episode of DS9, uh, the ship, the one about the ship. This is the one where in DS9 they have the ship. Yeah, the ship. Not, 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 no, not, not the other one you're thinking of. Yeah, you're thinking about that ship. I'm, I'm thinking about this ship. Uh, so that's the one that we're discussing today. We have picked it apart. We have examined it for all those important plot and character details. Now we get to wrap it all up by asking each other if the episode holds up and what morals, meanings, or messages did we find buried there within. So 
Norman, first question to you. Does the episode hold up however it is you want to interpret my asking that question? Can I ask your question with a question? Then I'll get into my... Oh, oh. I would love that. This is like an improv game. Yes. So did you get kind of the, a spiritual successor to the Galileo 7 from this? I did. I, uh, man, I, I didn't even think about that until you mentioned it. <laughs> That's, of course. See, now it's like, of course. Of course it's a spiritual successor to Galileo Because in 7. the Galileo 7, Spock, yeah. because he was so very rigid about the goal of how to get the shuttlecraft off the planet, he didn't mm-hmm. really entertain any of the other options that were, you know, that were in front of him. And I think that that's somewhat similar to what uh, Cisco is, you know, is kind of uh, engaged with here. I, I mean, this episode, I think, is amazing. I think it's absolutely flat out amazing. It's, I 100% love this episode. I love siege dramas. You know, I love it when you can mm-hmm. take this this the galactic story of what's happening but kind of confine it into like a stage play of three different sets you know you have the ship set you have the desert set and then you have uh you know the um obviously deep space nine so there are so many different layers to this episode and sure does it feel somewhat on rails when it comes to kind of the this this war type story uh siege type story yes i i think it does but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's not executed well. It's executed brilliantly, absolutely brilliantly. Mm. Mm-hmm. And sure, I think that 80% of the episode was in a way formulaic. But then again, formulaic episodes, when well done, allow you to focus on what you need to focus on. And for me, it all led up to, say, the last seven or eight minutes, which I think is some of the best moral study in Star Trek that I've seen in a long time, especially in Deep Space Nine, because in those last minutes, you have Cisco and Kalana coming together and saying, if we only trusted each other, we could have prevented all of these lives being lost. We were, mm-hmm. we were failures at this time. We failed our people because we mm-hmm. couldn't bridge this gap of trust. Then Cisco and Dax, I, I really love Cisco and Dax because Dax, and I know that this is probably going to be interpreted in a bunch of different ways, but I was feeling Curzon sitting with Benjamin Ooh, during yeah. these times. Good point. You know, Curzon being, yeah. and yeah. this is where it draws the parallel with O'Brien and Munoz. O'Brien being the elder statesman trying to educate his younger, you know, his, his younger apprentice, where very much Curzon was trying to, at one point in time, educate a younger Benjamin Sisko. Right, you're seeing like this yeah. this byplay, you know, kind of like this uh, this um, this comparison between this person who has so much experience trying to give somebody a little bit more perspective and using that perspective to move forward. And in Dax's case, as Curzon, seen a lot in that lifetime with all the other uh, all the other experiences of that trill host. So I thought that was really yeah. nice because, yeah. you know, you see this young, beautiful woman in Jadzia, but then you just feel the, the depth of the age and the wisdom coming out at that same mm-hmm. time. And you know that that's exactly what Benjamin needed to hear. And then I really did love just the unspoken truth and the bond that was, that was healed between O'Brien and Worf at the end by just sitting there and honoring Munoz in that rite of passage. No matter if it's uh, the Akvor or if it's just O'Brien wanting to crack open a bottle of Irish whiskey and drink until the sun came up, you know, honoring his friend. That was beautiful. 
It was perfectly yeah. understated. It didn't have to have all the bells and whistles of a drama closing. And I thought that was absolutely done to perfection. What did you think? So for well said. And, and first of all, uh, as you were describing that connection between Cisco and Dax and, and sort of Curzon coming out in that moment, I thought of another Star Trek reference, which would be the opening scene of The Cage, where it's uh, Captain Pike lamenting the loss of crew members and how long he's been out there, how it never gets easier any other time. Think about Dr. Boy sitting there talking about, uh, from his position of aged wisdom, uh, the responsibility of command. So there, there's another parallel to, uh, to sort of bind these together. Yeah, I also, I loved this episode. I loved it, loved it, loved it. Um, it to me, it just fires on so many levels. Uh, they effectively built tension in those scenes in the upside-down Jim Hadar warship. Had a kind of a haunted house feel to it. Um, there are genuine emotional moments and and a few laughs. Not, not laugh out loud, but again, DS9 has found its humor well in its characters. They constantly raise stakes throughout the show. They keep you guessing. And they give poignance, not only to the MacGuffin here, but more importantly, the reality of life and death in this corner of the Star Trek universe. Um, part of it... Part of it plays out like this vintage war movie. I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that in your wrap-up there. And, and in the wrong hands, that could really become a parody. And I'm just waiting for the scene where it's, it, like you said, it's O'Brien as Sarge going, now, now listen to me, Private. You're not going to die unless I say you're going to die. I bet you got a dame back home just waiting to see your ugly mug again. You're not going to die on my watch, not if old Uncle Sam and I have something to say about it. Like, that that's the scene I'm waiting for, right? Um but here in this episode, it doesn't turn to parody like that. Um, now, that said, and as I mentioned before here, I wish we had more of Munez before we got to this point. It would have meant more, but they did the best with what they had up to this point. That, that's the sort of, uh, uh, you know, hindsight being 2020 thing again. But I think you nailed it, which is to say that that 80% of the show that we get with building Munez and O'Brien's relationship, exploring all the ins and outs here with the other characters, it, we can kind of give those things a pass because they nail it in the end. They nail it with that last 10 to 20%. You know, Act 5 is stellar. Um, we... You know, in, this is a Star Trek problem. It's also a TV problem very often when you have, uh, you know, high action, high adventure, life and death type shows. Uh, but in 700 plus hours of programming, you don't take time to stop and acknowledge the people who die in those stories. You know, unless they are particularly personal, like Spock. And that is what the story is built in that case. So finally... We had moments here of the characters wrestling with the reality of what happens when people put themselves at risk. And damn it, that didn't make me choke up. Uh, they earned it. They, they earned those last moments, and, and it was beautiful. Uh, so this goes right up on my list of favorite DS9 episodes. 
So that's from a production point of view. What about uh, what about morals, meanings, messages, lessons, ruminations, etc.? Well, one of the things that I have grown to do when I'm watching these episodes is how how it applies to say the Kobayashi Maru scenario and the great axiom of Star Trek. Do the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one? And I actually equate the two being somewhat one and the same. And I know there are probably a lot of Star Trek fans out there saying, like, what, what do you mean? You know, this one's kind of like almost a Vulcan philosophical way of looking at things. The other's a Starfleet test. But they're really kind of the same, uh, the same equation, two sides of the same coin. And it's because it has, it has everything to do with character. The choices that you make in the Kobayashi mm-hmm. Maru scenario is about your character. I mean, Captain Kirk says it. It's a test of character, right? And uh, mm-hmm. he says, you know, how you deal with death is at least as important as how we deal with life, wouldn't you say? And that's where Dax comes into play here. Dax, when she challenges um, Cisco, when she says, it may sound cruel, but I know that the ship was worth it. Those five deaths may save 5,000 lives or maybe 5 million. The choice yeah. that Cisco had to make is the choice of both the Kobayashi Maru, because he has to choose five lives over the potential five million that he's going to save. And at the same time, though, he has to choose between... Um, that, that was, you know, the, the needs of the many of mm-hmm. these five million lives outweighing the needs of the few, those five or the one, Munias. That mm-hmm. all is coming to play here. And when I, when I finally realize that that's happening, especially towards the end... That is when an episode, to me, says, this is the Star Trek that speaks to me so clearly when it brings all of these dynamics right to the very pointed end. And the other thing that really stood out to me was this issue of the burden of command. The burden of command that Cisco has to carry forward. And I loved this interplay, the, like I said, the last couple scenes with Dax and Cisco, where, where Cisco asks Dax, and they're, I think they're in the, uh, the mess hall of the Defiant. He said, when you were at the academy, was Professor Somak teaching? And Dax says, moral and ethical issues of command. When I heard that, my ears perked up. I'm like, okay, here it is. Here it is. They actually <laughs> yeah, right. say right. what we're trying to get to in the end of this episode. Yeah. And Cisco yeah. says, I remember her favorite speech, quote, Always maintain emotional distance between yourself and those under your command, end quote. And Dax says, it's good advice. This is the reason why I brought that up with Worf, trying to distance himself emotionally from what is actually happening to Munoz. So I asked this question. Dax says, it's good advice. And I say, is it though? Is that good advice? Because when you put a captain in this situation, in the decision of command, and putting him with the burden of holding on to these memories of these lives that he has put in harm's way time and time again, that has to distance themselves emotionally from the people, as uh, this Professor Sumac was saying. But it also isolates them from their true feelings and what they could have been if they allowed themselves to just reach out emotionally and connect. And the way I see it, it's very much like how we see Picard at the end of all good things. You can tell when he walks into that poker room and everyone just kind of takes a pause and they're like, Oh, the captain's here. We must have to be, you know, there's must be something important or we must have to go on duty. And he's just like, no, no, Mm -hmm. no. And he sits down and he says, he looks around and he goes, I should have done this a long time ago. You can feel, you can feel the regret in that scene. 
But you yeah. can also feel that he's found the way to move forward and to turn that crew into a family. Yeah. Yeah, that's a new beginning. And, and, and it's fantastic for him because you can't simply... I mean, you can, but it's no way to live. Uh, uh, live your life just looking at the people around you as sort of the, uh, the, the numbers in the game, you know? So what, what Somax says is, sure, they, there may have to be some sort of level of emotional distance from everything that happens, but if you have no compassion, if you, if you have no connection to the people that you work with and who work uh, for you, under you, and your uh, command... Uh, really, what is the point of you even being there? <laughs> you know, um, yeah, that, that was a great uh, Picard moment, and, and I think honestly, so I, I'm not that far off from uh, your messages as well. You know, what comes across very strongly to me in this episode, and it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone who has watched this episode, is the the rumination on all the ways that trust either drives or even confuses our actions. You know, Cisco didn't trust Kalana. Kalana didn't trust Cisco, and they, they both learn a lesson from that. All those dead Starfleet officers put their trust into their commanders and into their sense of duty, into Starfleet itself. And, and then there is the trust in our actions that even if something goes wrong or if we take a beating along the way, there is still the trust that we made the right decisions. And that that's that conversation that Cisco and Dax are having at the end. I think there's also a great thread here about recognizing shared humanity. And yes, I, I realize as I say that word, humanity, I realize that we're talking about aliens, but they are us. <laughs> so we'll, we'll give ourselves a break here with that. Cisco and Kalana had a moment of recognizing what's at stake for each other. You, you mentioned that mutual failure there. That's an important moment for both of them. Cisco recognizes the humanity of those who serve under him. Dax recognizes the human toll that that has on Cisco. That that is such a powerful scene. And finally, Worf and O'Brien, who have have come at Munia's from opposite ends, but they recognize each other's compassion and concern. And when Worf says, "We will both keep the predators away." Damn it, do not make me cry, Worf, Norm, you, you listening? Just, uh, ah, that, it gets me. It gets me. It will get me every time. I love it so much. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you would like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. Enjoy all the great Roddenberry podcasts at podcast.roddenberry.com, where you'll find Women at Warp, Priority One, The Trek Files, your daily Star Trek news, and Shabam. Shabam! And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next mission log, looking for Parmach in all the wrong places. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. For those of you who have been shipping Warp and Dex, 
That ship doesn't set sail until next week. End transmission. Podcast.roddenberry.com The Roddenberry Podcast Network.